0: So for this time, then we have other speakers that will be here through the summer. So I'm a lay speaker. I'm not a pastor. I'm not trained. But um, today I will be speaking on Genesis 8. So feel free to take notes and read along in your Bibles. We're going through Genesis 8. So before we start, I'd like to review the Genesis timeline. Genesis is the foundation for our faith. It is the start of the word. And the young kids, boys and girls who have been in our Bible class, these images will look familiar. So um, there is one way to organize scripture and um, through our Answers in Genesis program. There are the seven C's. And I've... Put three of them here. So there's creation, then there's corruption, catastrophe, which is what we're talking about today the flood. And there's four more here, which I've blocked out, but it's confusion, which occurs at the Tower of Babel, coming of Christ, the cross, and consummation. So creation takes place in Genesis 1 and 2. Corruption occurs in Genesis 3, in the Garden of Eden, the fall. Genesis 4 and 5 has the events that lead up to the catastrophe. The catastrophe is God's judgment on mankind. But it's also his grace towards Noah and his family. So, uh, the outline for today is that we'll talk about the timeline of the flood, God's direction, Noah's testing in that time, Noah's worship, and in, and the chapter ends with God's promise. Now, this slide looks really busy, <laughs> um, but um, that's kind of how I read scripture, is that I, I kind of try and make sense of it, so don't worry about it too much. This is what we're going to go through, but um, we'll go through it piece by piece, so... Just uh, bear with me as as we go through Genesis 8, okay? So every time I read about the worldwide catastrophic flood, the events seem confusing to me. Compared to the genealogies found in Genesis 5, the genealogies are organized by length of life, the ages, the years. And it's zoomed out. You get this big picture from generation to generation. But in the flood, you have this this strange timing, which is stamped here, and it's year, month, and day. This is very specific. It's almost like it's zoomed in, and you get a focus on what is happening in this catastrophic worldwide flood. And on top of this, there are other timelines that are mixed in, 40 days and 40 nights, 150 days that the waters prevailed, so all of that mixed together is confusing. <laughs> it, it, for me, if I, if I, I've read through it several times and didn't really kind of make sense of it, but if you, if you take your time to read through the dates and the timestamps, then it, it does make sense. So we will walk through each section in this slide together as we read through Genesis 8. So in this first section, we're going to talk about the timeline of the flood and God's direction. The timing of important events during the flood, I've highlighted in blue throughout this presentation. Okay, so let's let's start. We'll read Genesis 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. The key word here is remembered, and it's a verb, it's an action. So God marked, He recognized, recalled, called to mind. This is the first instance or first use of this word in Scripture. So He remembered Noah, all the beasts, and all the cattle. And God caused a wind to pass over the earth. The wind, the word for wind here is a noun, it's a thing. There are many uses of this particular word. And depending on the context, it can mean spirit. If you remember back to Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 2, in that context, the same word is used with of God. So it's spirit of God. But here in Genesis 8, 1, the context is just the word by itself, without of God, so when it's by itself, then this, this word can just mean wind. God's direction is here. He commanded Noah, told them to build the ark, told them to enter the ark. He promises a covenant, sends judgment, and brings Noah through. Verse 2. Also the fountains of the deep... And the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky was restrained. Verse 2 parallels Genesis 7, 11 and 12. The fountains of the deep, it's a spring or a well that comes from below, from the abyss. And the floodgates are like a lattice, a window, like a sliding gate where there's a channel for rapid flow of water in the sky. And these are closed, they're shut up, and they're stopped. The rain from the sky is also restrained. It's shut up, it's held back, and it's restricted. So note in this verse that there are three sources of water. Fountains from the deep, floodgates from the sky when this lattice or window slides open, there's a large amount of rapid flow of water that comes out. And there's also... Rain from the sky. How long did God cause the rain to fall? Do you does anyone want to shout out an answer? How long did he cause it to fall? Forty days, that's right. So forty days and forty nights. So this these three sources of water are just flooding the earth over forty days and forty nights. So therefore, the closing, closing of these sources of water, the fountains and the floodgates, and the restraining of the rain, occurs at the end of the 40 days. So if we go back to Genesis 7, verses 10 to 12, that the water of the flood came upon the earth in the 600th year of Noah's life, in his second month, and on the 17th day of the month, On the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were opened and the rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. This is an important time in in the flood narrative. So Noah was 600 years old, second month, and 17th day of the month. And the three sources of water are also mentioned here in Genesis 7. This is the beginning of the flood. Okay, so we'll go back to my timeline here. So again, I've highlighted that specific date that's really important that the flood starts. When Noah's 600 years, second month, and his 17th day. It's the start of the flood. It's the start of the 40 days and 40 nights. So in verse 3 now. So all those sources of water are closed. And the water receded steadily from the earth. And at the end of 150 days, the water decreased. So note that verse 3, it states that the water recedes steadily from the earth, which is the first part of this verse. And the water decreases and that starts at the end of 150 days it's more descriptive to describe the exact time frame of when that starts so again to recap the flood begins when noah is 600 years old in his second month and his 17th day the waters prevail for 150 days that's in genesis 7 verse 24 and prevailed is an action okay it's to be strong to exceed, to be great, to be powerful, this is un- unusual. It's unheard of. These three sources of water unloading on the earth. And at the end of 150 days of the waters prevailing over the earth, then the waters decrease. Okay, so another question that came up from this study that is related to this is how long is a month? How long is a month during Biblical times? So there are calculations that are based on phases of the moon or rotations around the sun. The equinox is a time where light and dark are evenly split through 24 hours. Today, in our calendars, we have months that are 30 days or 31 days. We have one month that's 28 days and it could be 29 days. <laughs> but ancient calendars are different from the current calendars that we have. I believe that the number of days in a month is right here in Scripture in this section in in Genesis 8. So remember, we have the timestamp of years, months, days. So Noah was 600 years old. In his second month, in the 17th day, was the start of the flood. We have these other timelines 150 days, 40 days, and 40 nights. So I want you to focus on these these numbers. Okay. So the flood begins at this specific time here. The waters prevailed for 150 days, and at the end of 150 days, then the water decreases. So these are very specific events that occur, and they're they're called with specific times and durations. So going from This date here, second month, 17th day. The next time stamp is Noah is 600 years old, seventh month, and the 17th day. And this is where the ark rests on Mount Ararat. Okay? Look at these two numbers here, second and seventh. So we count that out. How many months is that? So second month, third month is one, fourth month is two, Fifth month is three, sixth month is four, seven month is five. So it's five months. Five months. How many days are in a month? We'd say it's 30 days. So that's 150 days. That's the exact time frame from when the flood starts, the, wa- the earth is filled with water, and then, then the waters start to decrease. So there's all these estimations that are out there. There are calculations about what, how long a month is, but in the in the Bible, it, it, there's a suggestion that a month is 30 days based on these timestamps. And remember, at the end of Genesis 7, it states again that water prevailed upon the earth for 150 days. Okay, so let's keep going into verses 4 and 5. In the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. The water decreased steadily until the tenth month. And in the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. So remember, Noah's age here is 600 years, seventh month, and 17th day of the month and that's the end of 150 days okay do you do you follow me on that yeah okay and it's so that's the end of 150 days and the waters are to decrease but it's also marked with the ark resting on the mountains of ararat so there's two events that signal the end of this 150 days Rested is a verb, it's an action. It means to settle down, to remain, and to be placed. In verse 5, we have another timestamp here. Noah is 600 years old. In the 10th month and the first of the month. So between this date here in verse 4 and the date here in verse 5, the waters then decrease. They decrease over that time frame. And if we calculate that out based on a month being 30 days, that's about 73 days where the water is reduced steadily and then you can see the tops of the mountains. So the event that is clearly visible at the end of verse 5 is that the tops of the mountains can be seen. So we're moving down on this timeline here. So again, end of 150 days where the water's prevailed, the water's decreased steadily, and then now we can see the tops of the mountains here at at this time frame. So I made another graph to try and make sense of this because it looks really confusing, right? If you look at all the dates and the times and the 150 days and the 40 days and going back and forth. So I'm a simple guy, so I have to see it on a graph so it makes sense, okay? So this graph is height of the water, okay, and time. It's very abstract, so just, you have to forgive my abstract PowerPoint drawings here, but this graph shows, it summarizes the events in verses one to five, okay? So here we have the start of the flood, which occurs when Noah is 600 years old, second month and 17th day. The water starts to rise. And that that happens over 40 days and 40 nights. And at this other time stamp, when Noah is 600 years old, in his seventh month and 17th day, that's when the ark rests on the Mount of Ararat, and the waters start to decrease. So I think that these 40 days and 40 nights where the the Earth is just filling up with water has to be included in the 150 days. It has to be. Because these two time stamps are separated by 150 days. This has to fit within this whole time frame. And the waters begin to decrease at the end of 150 days until the tops of the mountains are visible at this time frame when Noah is 600 years old in his 10th month and the first day. So, from the start of the flood to seeing the tops of the mountains, that's a total of 223 days. So, uh, here's another side trail that comes up in this this verse. So, in verse 4, it talks about the ark resting on top of the mountains of Ararat. Um, The the Strong's definition of the word Ararat is the curse reversed, or precipitation of the curse. Um, It's a proper name location, and... Um, some sources talk about this location being in Armenia, the eastern region between the river Araxes and the lakes of Van and Arumia. Now, I don't, I couldn't find the lakes of Van and Arumia, but if you look on, on a world map, and I've uh, looked on a different source, Halley's Handbook of the Bible, it names the area... Nakhchivan Nakhchivan in Azer, Azerbaijan and that the name of this town Nakhchivan means land of Noah and according to this handbook it talks about an ancient Persian language where nakh means Noah and shivan means place remember this is a rabbit trail so i'm i'm stepping outside of scripture this is not the same as scripture but it's just a, another thought okay? And if you look at the place, there is a place that's called Noah's Mausoleum. Noah's Mausoleum. A mausoleum is a place where they remember a person who's died, a famous person. And this is located right in this town of Nakhshavan. And there's a mountain that's about 27 kilometers away. It's visible from the town. It's called Mount Ilandag. And it's believed from the locals, that this is where Mount Ararat is. But my question, looking at all these details, is can this location be precisely determined? This is probably a rabbit trail or a side story that is difficult to precisely determine. And the reasons for this are time, there's human influence and ideas, there's politics, culture, ideologies, all of those things have influence, and probably more. Also, the names today might not mean and are probably not the same as the names that occurred during the time of the flood. Amanda and I have been watching a movie called Journey to Mount Sinai. Have any of you seen this movie yet or heard of it? Anyone? Journey to Mount Sinai. Okay. So the filmmaker is Tim Mahoney, and his organization is called Patterns of Evidence. And he investigates the prevailing narrative of the location of Mount Sinai, literally where God spoke to Moses and where the Ten Commandments were written. Interestingly, at the. So there's a prevailing narrative of where Mount Sinai is. And there's a museum and there are fancy buildings at this most popular site. Okay? But this most popular site was called Mount Sinai by by Constantine's mother. She just called it out and said, that's Mount Sinai. And that location persisted and prevailed over the centuries. Without any factual evidence or archaeology to say that perhaps that, that that is actually the location for Mount Sinai. So, although it would be nice to know where, where Mount Ararat is and to know the pre- precise details, I don't think knowing would make us believe anymore. We are to have faith, and faith is not by sight. He has revealed to himself to us through creation and through his word, and we are to believe. And just like the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, not even the appearance of Moses himself could make unbelievers believe. So we don't need evidence, but it, it is encouraging when the patterns of evidence fit. So I'll stop that rabbit trail, and I'll go back, to, go back to Scripture, go back to the passage. So we saw God's direction and all those important events during the flood, and now we're going to get into Noah's testing, where he tests whether the flood is over. Verse 6. Then it came about at the end of 40 days, that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. And he sent out a raven, and it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. So in verse 6, Noah opened the window. The window is like a piercing or a perforation on the wall. And note that there is a time stamp here of end of 40 days. So... Looking at scripture in this section, it's my belief that the falling events of the ravens and the doves occur between the end of 40 days and nights, when, when the, the flood is occurring in that time frame, and then seeing the mountaintops at the end of 150 days. Okay. And I, I think this because the raven has no place to rest until everything is dried up, and the first dove has no place to, to land. And the mountaintops are not visible until the end of 150 days plus another 73 days. So you'll see this as we go through the next next few verses here. Um, Another thought here is why why a raven? So a raven is not a clean bird, but um, I, I couldn't determine a clear reason why a raven was picked here. Other than it's, it is used in other parts of scripture. In the book of Job, God specifically cares for a raven. God has a use for it in 1 Kings when Elijah is being fed by the ravens. It's mentioned in Psalms and Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and in Isaiah. So there is some reason for it being mentioned. Um, it flew here and there, which literally means it went out and it returned. And it had to wait for the earth to be dried up. So the surface of the earth was, had to be dry before it, it, could, it stopped moving back and forth. And dried here in, this, in verse 7 means that without moisture. So it has to be dry. So the raven is probably flying around until the end of Noah's time in the ark. Okay, verse 8. Then he he sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. So she returned to him into the ark, for the water was on the surface of all the earth. Then he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark himself. So in verse 8, abated is a verb. It's an action. So it's to be light to be slight, and it's for water to be less. And this is different from the word dried. Dried means no moisture. So, beta just means less. <clears throat> the face of the land means the surface of the land. And in this instance, I think Noah is just testing. He's practicing observational science. He's putting out the, the dove to see if, if the waters have have uh, dried. In verse 9, the dove could not find a resting place. So because of that, I think that the water still covered the face of the land. The water has not abated and the mountaintops are not visible. So therefore, I think that, that this event occurs around the time of when the mountaintops become visible, when Noah is 600 years old, in his 10th month and the first day. So around, around this time here is when we see the first bird, the raven, and the second bird, the first dove, released. Another interpretation is to say that Noah waited another 40 days after the, the mountaintops were visible. And I think it, it doesn't matter either way because the total timeline is the same from the start of the flood to when Noah leaves the yeah. ark. But because there's a lack of specific timestamps of year, month, and day, then these bird sending events are can be it's not clearly clearly uh, stated when they occur. Okay, so we'll go to verse 10. So he waited yet another seven days, and he again sent out the dove from the ark. The dove came to him toward evening, and behold. In her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. So no one knew that the water was abated from the earth. Then he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, but she did not return to him again. So in verse 10, the second dove is sent out. And it's very specific that he waited seven days from the first dove. Okay? In verse 11, enough water has abated, has gone down, so that it picked up an olive leaf and brought it back to Noah. And in verse 12, Noah tests again by sending the dove out for the third time. So I think because of these, these events in verses 10 to 12, I think that this, these events of sending out the, the four birds occurs around the the time of the event of the mountaintops being visible. Remember, the raven had no place to... It just kept flying back and forth until everything was dry. The first dove had no place to rest. The second dove found an olive leaf, so there must be some drying that's going on. And, And so I think it's in between these two times where the mountaintops are visible, that there's enough drying that's occurred. And then seven days later, then the, thir- the third dove does not return to the ark, does not return to Noah. Does that make sense? I'm trying to, trying to put together the, these timelines so that we can see how God has written this. Okay, so verse 13. Now it came about in the 600th, 600 and first year, In the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground is dried up. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. So in verse 13, Noah's age is 601 years, first month, first day. The water is dried up. And it's verified by Noah removing the cover and seeing that the surface is dry. Literally, that the face of the ground is dry. And if we count back, this is 90 days from the mountaintops being visible to the surface here being dried up. So it's a very rapid removal of water. And then in verse 14, Noah's age is 601 years, second month, and 27th day and the earth and the ground is dry. So this is another 56 days from the surface being dried here, surface being dried, to the earth being completely dry. Again, it's rapid drying of the earth. So these are two distinct and visibly different changes that are observed by Noah. Okay, so again, at this point here, the water is dried from the earth when Noah is 601 years old, first month, first day. And then 601 years, second month, 27th day, then the earth is dry. And then God tells Noah to leave the boat. So verse 15. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, You and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you, bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So I want you to note here that Noah does not leave the ark until God says so. He does not leave the ark until God commands him to leave. From the command to enter the ark in Genesis 7 verses 1 to 4 to the end of the flood, the total time is 370 days. And I want want you to remember and to note here that while inside the ark, Noah had no direct communication from God. Noah had the liberty to perform objective tests with animals, and to see things with his own eyes. But Noah waited for God's command to leave the ark. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. So, in this passage, Noah obeys God's command. So, back to that that funny graph that I had. So, the mountaintops are visible here. Okay. And then, there's 90 days that pass. And when Noah's 601 years old, in the first month of the first day, The surface is dry. And there's another 56 days that pass. And when, sorry, that's a typo, sorry. That should be 601 years, second month, 27th day. That's when Noah leaves the ark. Okay. The next part of this chapter is Noah's worship. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and he took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. So in verse 20, Noah built an altar. An altar is a place to sacrifice or to slaughter for sacrifice. He offered burnt offerings. Remember back to Genesis 4.4 when Abel gave worship to God. He offered the firstlings from his flock. And he was following the direction from God in Genesis 3.20 where God sacrificed animals to cover the sin of Adam and Eve. Remember Genesis 7 verses 2 to 3 where God is telling Noah to bring every clean animal by sevens and that animals that are not clean too and the birds of the sky to bring them in as well by sevens. And finally, this is God's promise at the end of Genesis 8. So I'll read verse 21 again. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. So the Lord describes the covenant fulfilling what he said in Genesis 6, 18, where God says, I will establish my covenant with you, with Noah, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your son's wives with you. And I want you to note that here in verse 21, the wording here is similar to how it's described, how the people are described before the flood, the evil of mankind. So in Genesis 6, 5, it says that then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually compared to this section where the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. So I think that's another contrast to what things were like before the flood where everyone was evil. Every thought was evil. It didn't matter the age of the person. Everything, every thought was evil continually. And now after the flood... The intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. So God has, has uh, enacted his judgment on mankind. And going forward, then, man is evil from his youth. And there is a time where there is, I think there is unawareness. There is conscience that will develop. And there's a certain age where people have to, will bear a conscience. And it's not right from birth. I haven't completely fleshed out the idea here, but it it is a different thing than what happened prior to the flood. There's also a connection in, in this passage with Isaiah 54, verses 9 to 10, where it says, For this is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again. So I have sworn that I would not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you. And my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Here, the Lord is speaking through the prophet Isaiah. And God connects this situation with Isaiah, this promise, and compares it to the promise he made with Noah. So in this passage, it verifies the truth and the historicity of Noah and the flood. And finally, in Genesis 8.22, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night, shall not cease. We just finished our series in Peter, and I think it's important, it's interesting to note that um, in verse 7, by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So day and night will not cease, sea time and harvest, cold heat, and heat, while the earth remains. And that's the end of Genesis 8. So it's although it's interesting to, to read through Scripture, but I think we need to make a connection from with in Scripture to Christ. And that's that's really important. We can see Christ throughout Scripture. And I've heard people say you can see Christ in every page of the Bible. So um, I put together this comparison of Christ and how he is. Similar to the events that occurred in the flood and with the ark. In John 10, 9, Jesus says that, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Genesis 7, 16, Those that entered the ark, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind him. So there's one door to enter. There's one salvation and one ark. John 14 and 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. In Genesis 7-4, it says, For after seven more days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. Have you gone to him for salvation? Is Jesus Christ... Your Lord and your Savior. Jesus Christ is our protection, and the ark served a similar purpose to Noah and his family. Matthew 24 46. Blessed is the slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. And that's the, uh, the slave who is ready for his return. Genesis 7 1. The Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household. For you alone, I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. Do we continue to trust Jesus as we are in this world? Jesus calls us to to act, and in uh, the ark and the flood account, we are called Noah is called to enter. So, verse twenty-five four is talking about the the parable of the the virgins and their lamps. The prudent took the oil in their flasks along with their lamps. And Genesis 7:5, Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. So the question is: are you ready? There will be judgment that's coming. So in Matthew 25:46, <clears throat> Jesus is talking about the people that will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will into eternal life. And 7.23 talks about the every living thing being destroyed. Jesus states that it is finished in John 9, 19.30. when he died on the cross. And in Genesis 8.16, go out of the ark, you and your wife, your sons and your sons' wives with you. God declare that it is finished and they can leave. In Jesus, we can have new life. We need to be born again, as it says in John 3.3. 3. And in Genesis 9.1, God blesses Noah and tells him to be fruitful and multiply, multiply to have a new life after the flood. Jesus Christ is our new covenant and he does this with the cup at the Last Supper. God states that there is a new covenant with Noah and his family. So the application here is that is to answer the question is Jesus Christ your Lord and your Savior? If you're unsure then come and speak to one of us. The only way back to be reconciled to God is through believing on the Son, God the Son, Jesus Christ. If you have put your trust in him, then remember to stay in his presence. Stay in the boat. Choose to read his word. Conform your mind, your heart, and your life to his word. And it's an action that we have to do. It's an active thing we must center ourselves on Christ. Okay. I'll close in prayer and I'll invite the worship team to come up. Dear heavenly Father, thank you that you've given us your word. That you've given us clarity on what we are supposed to have our focus on. We are to focus on you. We are to be with you. We are to be in your presence. And in doing so, then we, we know that our future is secured, that we will, be, we will be with you again. And that no matter what happens in this life, while we are here on this earth, that we will be protected because we have put our trust in you. So I, I pray that the words from this passage will sink deep into our hearts and that it will remind us that if we haven't called you our Lord and Savior, that we need to do that. And if we have called you our Lord and Savior, that we need to continue to come to you because you provide us protection from from the troubles that we all face. Praise in Jesus' name, amen.